All right, everyone, if you don't mind, grab your scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 17. You also have it printed in your worship guide. Uh, so, uh, and then we will try to do our best to put it up here on the screen if you do not have your scriptures. But let's go ahead. And uh, this is the word of God given to us this morning. Verse 17 and following. We'll go all the way to chapter 2, verse, verse 5. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And preach not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, the prophet Isaiah says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And I will also destroy, I will destroy the discernment of the discerning, discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world uh, did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks uh, seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word. And so let's pray. Jesus Christ, as we open up this scripture, there are a lot of words, there are a lot of phrases, many paragraphs. Sometimes it's hard to listen to Paul and glue it all together. And yet, Jesus Christ, that's what we're asking this morning. We're asking you to open our eyes and we're asking you to clear our heads. We're asking you to open our ears, to listen, to understand, to be able to, to discern what you have for us this morning. More often than not, God, we get distracted by other things. And what Paul is trying to do in our lives and in this scripture is to point us back to the simplicity that Jesus Christ and Christ crucified will save us from our sins. Help us to receive that message this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 
from 1942 to 1945, one of the most horrific terms in history were used by Nazi Germany. Uh, when they thought of people that should just be outright killed, they would use this word Lebensunwürzig, Leben, which means life, unworthy of life. And so if they saw someone that they thought just to be killed, they looked at that life and said, you are unworthy of that life. Because of this, Nazi Germany would not stop until the ex complete extermination of Jews were complete, as well as other ethnic cleansings. There were things like concentration camps, there were firing squads, and there were gas chambers. The Washington Post reports that now as we look at all the data, some six million Jews were taken from the face of the, of the planet along with five million other folks that were ethnically unclean. All of these killed by Nazi Germany. And so what would we do with this picture? If we were in an old historic church, and you remember the old stained glass that would fill either the atrium or in the back or along the windows, what would it do for us if a part of that stained glass picture would be a picture of Auschwitz? How would we look at a picture like that in a place like that? Because Auschwitz is not a place that needs to be celebrated or put in stained glass. Instead, it's the place that needs to be mourned and maybe even, for some, forgotten. After a great tragedy of 9-11, it is for us, it's as Americans, that day truly defined us as a generation. We saw the sights and we heard the sounds. We heard the stories time after time. 9-11 is seared in our memories. What would, what would it do for us if we had t-shirts printed and distributed with airplanes going into tall buildings? What if even now on the anniversary of 9-11, we would throw a party in the sake of, of that horrid day, a party on this site or t-shirts being worn would be something that would be inconceivable to us as Americans. Whether it's Auschwitz or whether it's 9-11, there are certain events that needs to stay in the picture of horrific. And there needs to be pictures that stay in just the realm of horrible and terror and something that should not be celebrated at all. Crucifixion, this idea of the cross, was an ancient day Auschwitz or 9-11. Crucifixion was a place in which someone was stretched thin like this and nailed to a cross, both by his wrists and also by his, by his feet, and hung there simply to die. It was a place of horror and a place of agony. It was a place of excruciating pain, screams of pain, drips of blood, nauseous onlookers. This place, the place of crucifixion, was a place of absolute shock and horror. It was so horrible that it was undignified to speak in public about these slaves or these barbarians or these criminals who were tortured in this way. Polite company would not even speak of the word crucifixion. Who would enjoy talking about this torture? 
Who would enjoy looking at victim upon victims? Who would enjoy talking about the pain and asphyxiation of those men and some women who are stretched out like that? Much less talk. Who would want to watch it? Simply put, Auschwitz and 9-11 and crucifixion should not be celebrated. There's something, but they're definitely not places of celebration. And yet... Here we are in the year 2020. And 2,000 years removed, there's something that's puzzling that's happening inside of our society and has been a part of our society for a while. You can look around and you will find a cross. This picture of crucifixion actually etched in marble and etched in stone. Also a picture of celebration. You will find t-shirts with a cross on it. You will find letterhead with a cross embossed on it. Over and over, this is a picture that looks like celebration. It looks like people are trying to get your eyes to look upon it, not just once and never to look again, but over and over and over again. So what happened? What happened for a place of torture and a place of horror? How can it be a place of celebration today? Well, our passage today tells us why it turned on us and how we can truly celebrate these types of things. Today's passage, we will hear why the crucifixion of Christ did not stay in the horrible category, but actually crossed the aisle and into a thing that we celebrate. And if you look at your worship guide, these are the songs that we are strategically singing out loud for others to hear as well as myself. The cross and cross crucified and Christ crucified over over and over and over again. We are in a series where week in and week out, Paul is going to correct us. He's going to stand in front of us. He's not going to be bashful. He's going to square shoulders and he is going to correct the, the, the church of Christ. That's why it's in the plural. It's not just me being corrected or you being corrected. It's that we are standing corrected underneath this passage. So today, there are three groups of people that are going to be corrected. First, the first group is the crucifixion of Jesus corrects those people who are far from Jesus. People who are on the outside of the family of faith. And so when we look at the cross and why it should be celebrated, but it's not, the correction is actually to people who are far from Jesus, who are outside the people of faith. The second uh, group of people are the crucifixion of Jesus will correct those people that are inside the people uh, of God, inside of Christian community. So the cross actually does some, some, some correcting to both the outsider and the insider alike. And thirdly, the crucifixion will come and correct those people who communicate about the gospel actually come alongside and give us some parameters on, on how we are to communicate. So section one, those people who are far from Jesus. Um, oh, sorry, I gave you those. So if, note takers, go ahead. There you go. All right. First and foremost, those people who are far from Jesus. All right, this is in sec starting in uh, section 18 and following. Uh, for two weeks now, we have heard Paul criticize not only the city of Cor Corinth, but also the church within Corinth because they, are, they have a divisive spirit, right? Some people are on the left and some people are on the right, and that's just how they are. This culture is super competitive. They love success, and sometimes this need for success and this need for 
for competition actually splits them rather than brings them apart. Um, they found for themselves, because of this competition and because of this, the, this success, they find themselves clumping up together. And they find themselves in tribes or they're in cliques. So they're a little bit like middle school girls where they just get together and they just talk a lot. And sometimes they look and they talk at other people. And that's just the way it goes. And so just big middle schoolers are now doing more cliquish, tribish type things. And they're talking about one another. And so they say on things like, my, my group has the best leader ever. And somebody looks like, no way, yours, nothing. My group is nothing. Someone comes up and is like, no, you're both wrong. My leader is the best and yada, yada, yada. And so before you know it, you've got three, four, five groups and they're just splintered apart over and over and over because this was a culture of competition. And this was a culture of success. And this was a culture in order for us to get ahead, we have to push people down in order for us to rise up. And it happens over and over and over again. But there's a specific way in which they loved to divide themselves. It was over these personalities. In ancient Corinth, people loved to hear good messages or loved to hear good speeches. So think about the TED Talk of the year zero, you know, 62, right? We love a good TED Talk. We love to hear a good speech. We get enthralled by the words and we, like, we want to respond in action. Well, Corinth was very similar in that way where they loved a good speech. They loved persuasion. They loved wit. They loved humor. They wanted to be persuaded. And so when they were divided, they were often divided by these personalities who would come and they would own the tribe or own the clique. Well, if they're going to be separated, Paul is truly going to separate them. And he's going to look at them and say, well, if you want to be divisive, if you truly want to divide yourself, let me, underneath the authority of God, be the one to define exactly what's going on inside, inside uh, this. And so in 18 and 19, you're going to hear this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I will thwart. And so what do you see here? as what Paul is doing to divide the people. If you're going to do it, let me come alongside you and do it. In the ancient world, they would divide themselves between Jew and Greek. They would divide themselves between Roman and, 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 um, and others, or savages, or, or barbarians. They would divide themselves whether you were free or whether you were slave. These are the types of things that they would divide themselves. However, if you look here in verse 18, Paul says that there is a division that, that matters most. The, those other divisions mean nothing, but this division is something that you really need to take, take into account because your divisions divide yourself out by personality. But this division in which you're supposed to truly be listening to has eternal consequences. If you don't get this division right, then your eternity may weigh in the balance. You see, the only division that matters is those who are perishing and those who are being saved. This is the dividing line that truly needs to understand. Human wisdom cannot solve man's most haunting question, which is truly salvation. And so if you're going to be divided, make sure you understand that there is a group of people who are currently perishing. 
And there's a group of people that are being saved. This has eternal consequences. The only thing that makes an outsider, those people who are far from Jesus on the outside, is that they are perishing. And the only thing that makes people that are a part of the people of God is that they are being saved. These are the only divisions that matters in all of humanity. So think about this strong language. For it is written, I will destroy, Jesus, or God says. This is Isaiah 39. It says, I will destroy. Think about this, this very aggressive language here. God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He will destroy the intelligence of all the intelligence. He's going to wipe it all clean because human wisdom cannot solve our problems. What we need is to be saved. That's what we need. And so the wisdom of this world, right? The discernment that we can come up with our own will not ever get us to this thing of being saved. We will simply be perishing if we don't understand that the wisdom and the salvation that we need does not come in this world, but it comes from God alone. We also learn that the word of cross is the power of God. We learn that the word of the cross is where true power lies. The gospel is not this idea of good news, right, Uh, that just gives you good advice. This is good news that will keep you from ultimately and forever perishing. And so Paul is looking at them and trying to gain their attention and trying to correct them from the get-go and say, have you considered your eternal destiny? You're fighting with one another over things that have no consequence at all. What you should be pursuing is the way in which salvation will land in your lap. And the only way that that is happening is through the word of cross, which is the power of God. This is the way in which you will be saved. What Paul is encouraging us to do is to put our eyes on something else. Our natural tendency is to put our eyes on things of beauty and things of intelligence and things of wow and things of remarkable. That's how we are naturally aimed and built as humans is for us to look at those spectacular things that will bring us just some kind of awe. And what Paul is saying is, yes, you need to put your eyes on something, but it's something totally different. You need to put your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ fully and completely. You want to be wowed. You want to be in awe. If you want to understand power, the only place that you're going to find it is not of this world, but is actually God himself coming and putting himself on the cross for our sins. This word power, if you start in verse 17 and following, this word power comes, it happens in this passage five different times. So obviously he's trying to draw our attention here. He wants us to understand that true power, like true, the ability to move something is possible. And yet this power is not attached to anything that we can find of this world, but only God himself. This power is wonderful. 
It also tells us that, um, that um, we are being saved is this, this idea that it's transformative. Our good friend Daniel McIntosh brought us to this, this wonderful clue. Is this power actually transforms people. If you remember in verse 18, it transformed people who were perishing into being saved. That's because that the laws of this world, they call this the law of entropy. That's a big word. All right, that's okay. The law of entropy means that everything is by design going downhill and going downhill fast. That is why I have wrinkles and I used to not. That's why I'm gray when I used to be black-headed. That's why I'm short when I used to be tall. It's all entropy. That's what it is. You just degrade down into like just that's, that's what you do is that things fall apart. Things break down. Meaning the things that were once growing and strong will at some point fall upon itself. So take, for instance, uh, this past Christmas. My boys wanted a go-kart. They've been asking for a go-kart for years now. When I say years, it is no, I mean, there's for years now, hey, dad, mom, can we have something that goes room? And we're like, no, you can't. So we tried to pacify them with those little scooters that didn't work. We tried the mountain bikes that didn't work. They wanted something to crank. They want something with power. They wanted something to make the vibration in your knuckles. They wanted just to feel what it means to be in control, right? And so my boys, this Christmas day, they got their wish. They got a go-kart. Nicole and I were looking on Facebook Marketplace and we found this raggedy old thing. It was terrible. It was a, we should have known by the price that it was in trouble, but we're like, no, we, we, can, we can make it work. So we go and we purchase this thing. We test drive. It looks great. What's, we, just, we paint it and we like put the, what's the stuff on the wheels with little armor all. I mean, we just, we got it looking great for Christmas Day. We crank it. Everything's good. Well, Christmas Day, we're like, ah, we got a go-kart. It was crazy that running around like da, 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 and they were like having fun and they're throwing things and they're giving us hugs greatest dad in the world award I mean just it was amazing so we crank it and they buzz off and it's awesome we're taking videos we're sending it to people like, look at this it's so great it's so good it's cold Christmas Christmas morning and then 20 minutes later it breaks and if you know me I am no mechanic I mean, at all. I mean, I don't, I mean, I think the last time I changed my oil in my car was March of like 2018. I mean, that's how bad of like, that's bad for your car, right? Um, so I just, I don't have an appreciation for mechanical things at all. So this thing that was so wonderful within 20 minutes is now kaput. I have probably invested more money in the repairs of this thing than I actually paid for it. I have spent probably, no kidding, 20 hours trying to make this thing work and they've only ridden it maybe two hours and Christmas was a long time ago. Well, this is the picture of entropy. The fact that you and I are always descending into darkness and you and I are always descending into death and you and I are always descending out of vitality and I, out of things that will look like life and into things that look like death. And yet, the power of God comes into our lives and into the pas uh, this passage and does something remarkable. It stops death and decay and entropy in its tracks. 
and doesn't just stop the descent, but actually reverses it and enlivens us. This is the power of God. If you want all of the health care and all the things that will make you look like you are not descending, none of that will ever work. The only thing that will reverse it and stop it and send you the other way is the power of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what we want. And so who wouldn't want it? Who wouldn't want this kind of power in this life? The power of God is that strong. Verse 20, 21, where is the one who is wise? And where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this world? Paul then stops talking about the power of God and he then looks to the three greatest categories that humanity can give us. Those who are wise, those who are scribes, and those who are debaters of the age. So the scribes, uh, or who are, who's the wise one? This is not biblical wisdom. In fact, in the old days, Paul was referring to this ambition, uh, ambitious pursuit of human and worldly wisdom. Right? So this is not biblical wisdom. This is worldly wisdom. Wise men in the first uh, first century were what they call well-articulated uh, worldviews. They were able to make sense of the world and give people solutions. And they were able to come alongside with the life's greatest questions and give good answers to those things. And so as they composed all of these worldviews that made sense out of a very complicated world, people would come alongside these wise men and start to follow them because they were giving them full explanation of what they did not understand. What Paul is asking because of the power of God that's found in the cross, what Paul is asking is where is the wise one? What he's truly asking is this, of your worldview, wise person, which of those worldviews that you have concocted, which one will help you discern God's will and discern God's marvelous plan of salvation? Where are you when it comes to ultimate things? The plan of salvation. How are you going to reverse the idea that you are perishing and now you are now but you can have great life? Where are you, O oh wise one, when you come to that? For instance, for the last 200 years, we have too understood these ideas of worldviews. Um, so the idea for us is uh, at what place does the cross of Christ have inside the worldview of communism? The answer is you can't find it. Or where is eternal salvation inside of socialism? So communism, communism and socialism solve some problems. But as far as eternal salvation or the place of the cross, it's fully empty. Or where, where does secular humanism give you in your perishing or can any of these worldviews, no matter how great they are, can they truly push you to a place where you understand the cross of Jesus Christ more fully? And the answer is here, a resounding no. Here in America, we believe that democracy is the best. Like we too are a tribe. 
we look down on all other systems and we're like, you just don't understand. If you'd come to this side, you'd get it. Don't you know that the founding fathers, they were able to write this document, it's called the Constitution, and it was amazing. And what it did was it was removing powers from individuals and giving it to the corporate. And so these founding fathers, they are the ones who dreamed up the judicial branch or the legislative branch or the executive branch. They are the ones who were able to envelop on top of that the ballot box in which the will of the people would have a representative. As good and wonderful as that is, and it's great, and we're so glad that we live here, still, as brilliant as they were, as the framers were, do they point to eternal salvation? The Constitution has its job, but to point and to clarify the word of the cross, it comes up very short. So where are you, O wise person? And where are you, scribe? The scribes are likely Jewish theologians who understood the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And they were the ones who were looking for a Messiah, someone who would save them and, and truly free them from everything. But the Old Testament, right, that they were interpreting over and over and over, saw a Messiah who would come in as a reigning king who would dispel all of the world's powers and make Israel be reigning and ruling. In this concept of a scribe, in this idea of an Old Testament scholar, for some reason, they never anticipated the Messiah would actually be a suffering servant. And so as good as these Old Testament scholars are, they too fell short because they did not have any wherewithal that God would actually come down with us and join us where we are and ultimately be humiliated on a cross. There is just no way to put that into words. And then where are you a debater of this, of this age? This is simply someone who is great with words, someone who loves a good argument, someone who is able to be at the top of his game uh, verbally or what we would say even uh, just would have a handle on multimedia. These are people who are able to push a message and be able to see that message fulfilled. These are our debaters of the age, people who are able to move us on along. Over and over and over, where is this person and where is that person and where's another? You just can't find a worldview in which will give us or lead us to the cross. It simply cannot happen. So these, these people, as smart as they are, we realize that has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God has strategically come alongside the wise and strategically come along the scribe and, and strategically come alongside the debater and made them foolish. He's like, that cannot be the way. That cannot be the solution for us. And so why has God done this? Why has he been so cruel, right, to bring them down in all of their wisdom, in all of their statue? Why is it good that God has made foolish the things that we would consider wise? How has God actually worked this out? Well, he has established a world where folly and foolishness would not be triumphant over the world's wisdom, but his wisdom would be triumphant. And that's the why men and women would come to know God, not through the wisdom of all of these different people, 
But the only way that you can come to know Jesus is through God and God alone. God determined that salvation would come not through the wisdom of the world, but would come through what he would consider the foolishness of the cross. A dead guy on a bloody cross. That's the way in which you will no longer perish, but have eternal life. And this is truly breathtaking to all of us. That God would make foolish those who are wise. Because if he had not made foolish these wise people, then the people who inherit the kingdom of God, the people who come into salvation, these are the people of, that have extraordinary IQs. These people who are truly more, more brilliant and, and, and smarter and more mature than any of us. If he had not humbled the wisdom of this world, then all of the beautiful and all of the intellectual and all of the go-getters, they are the ones who would inherit the kingdom of God. But that's not the case. That's not the case at all. He has in, in, enlarged the umbrella and allowed so many more people to get in than simply the wise of this world. The people of Harvard have their academic standards and their admission test, and this is how you get into Harvard. The people of Hollywood have their standards and their award ceremonies. This is how you get ahead in Hollywood. But if you are going to make it in God's kingdom, the wisdom of everything that we have stitched together will not work. It has to be something that is produced by God and God alone. And that's when, uh, when Paul distinguishes these two groups of people. These two groups of people that have, just, uh, that have everything. It says, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. There are two people, two sets of groups inside of the perishing. And that there's a reason for their perishing. And we need to listen to why they perish. First and foremost, we might be like the Jews who demand a sign. Or some of us may be perishing because we are like Greeks and we seek wisdom. But regardless, those people who are perishing, who are far from Jesus, you can find you in two of these camps. I need, I need proof. I need a sign. Or the other group is, I need it to make sense. And in either way, whether you force a sign, right? Force proof or force for it to make sense, oftentimes, more often than not, what will happen a stumbling block will happen to you. You'll actually trip over the thing that you want more than anything. The Jews demanded a sign. We hear this in Jesus over and over. Hey, teacher, we want to see a miracle. Jesus then would reply, you adulterous generation who asks for signs. God's people have always been open for proof that God exists. Even when Jesus was on the cross, it says, hey, if you truly are the son of a God, come down off that cross and then we will believe. Maybe just maybe you're in here. And the reason that you're not coming to Jesus is because you're here. You have to see proof before you act. And you're demanding a sign of God. I will devote myself to you, Lord, if you heal my child. I need proof of my child's health before I will believe in you. Lord, I will follow you if I can keep my independence. Lord, my independence is more important than you, you would say. I will be happy to become a Christian if, Lord, 
you will do this or show yourself to me in this way. Over and over and over, we banter with the Lord. We banter with him as if we are the ones in the driver, driver's seat. If we're the ones that have the authority over him in the first place. If the Jews were bad, the Greeks are just as badly in that they need to have everything make sense. And if everything doesn't make sense, that they will disregard it as foolishness or something that has no place in us whatsoever. And so maybe you're a, more Jewish like this and you're demanding proof before you believe in God. Well, if you do that, you will go on a long and empty trail and you will never be satisfied. Or maybe you're cognitively or intellectually not able to make everything make sense. And so maybe you have dismissed Christianity altogether. Well, if you do that and wait for everything to make sense, then it is a long and an empty trail because over and over, God has asked us to trust him, to have faith in him and to go after him. Part two tells us this. That there are people who are far from Jesus, but then there's also people who are part of God's family. There are people that actually come that need to be corrected that are, that are on the inside. Look at this. But consider your calling, my brothers. Not many of you were wise according to, godly, uh, to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose uh, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Over and over and over, we see this idea that we are called and we have been chosen to do something remarkable for God. And so when Paul corrects those people who are inside the family of God, he says, first and foremost, brothers, right? Have you not been called? Remember that it is God's calling on your life that got you here on the, in the first place. You can claim no um, responsibility for that other than responding to the call. It's God's voice that initiated this response. First and foremost, that's, that there must be a call of God. This is the correction for us is, have we forgotten that we've been called by name, been called by us? It is God who named Adam and Eve. It's God who called Abraham. It's God who called Moses and Isaiah. It's God who called people like Mary and Joseph and, and Zechariah. It's God who called Paul himself by name. Let us not forget, brothers and sisters, our calling in which we have been chosen by God, fully and completely gone after and sought after, you have put yourself in a tribe or you have segregated yourself in a way that you shouldn't because all of us have this universal truth that we have been called by God alone. That is our inheritance. That God started this thing fully and completely. But the stunner of all stunners is who he called. These are the people that make up the local church over and over and over. Consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you are wise. None of you had worldly standards. You weren't powerful. You were of no, you had no noble birth. These are the people that make up local churches all over the globe. And let me give you a hint. You are not that impressive. And you're not that rich. And you're not that noble. And you're not that influential. 
And this is what Paul is saying is you have put your identity in places where the world's wisdom has elevated. Things like wisdom and worldly standards and powerful and being of noble birth. Those things are for people who are perishing. Do not cast your lot or invest in those types of things because quite frankly, empirically, empirically, just looking at the local church in Corinth, there were just not that many of you that had very many things impressive about them. They were simply nobodies. There were people just like you and me. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Jeremiah would say. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The fact is, is that the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth and here, we should be some of the most um, diverse people on planet earth because we don't have things in common and that's what we have in common. It's not like we're all going together and we're going to get together with all of our nobles. We're not going to just get together and be in this big, um, um, uh, big meetings with powerful or the rich. In fact, we are the ones that should be slave and free. We're the ones who should look and celebrate the fact that we are both Jew and Gentile. We should celebrate that there's rich and poor in here, male and female, educated people, as well as people who've never graduated high school. There are some influential people inside this church and church in Corinth. There were men like Crispus and Eurastus. There were women like Chloe who were of some of these noble classes. But by and large, not many of you were powerful or noble or rich. And so the correction for those people inside God's family was why are you pursuing those things? You already have a family. You already have a place. You may be something. You may be very successful. But to my knowledge, there's no Rockefellers inside our church. There's no Vanderbilts inside this church. There's no gates inside this church. The families that have unknown wealth and power in our culture, it's just not who we are. Not any of us were able to attend Jay-Z and Beyonce's uh, gold party after the Emmys, like we just, or the Oscars, like we just, we weren't invited. And what Paul is saying is, that's not just okay. That's kind of the way it should be. Because oftentimes our identity is found in the things that the world can offer and not the things that God claims precious. And so for those who communicate about the gospel, he says, this is what you do. Over and over and over, verse 31, this is what we should do as God's people. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's unplugging from the matrix of the day. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As good as your speech is, as powerful as you are, just know that when Paul got up to preach and teach, he taught one thing, Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and our message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith, and there it is, how are you able to go from perishing to being saved? That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but one more time, but rest in the power of God. And so if we are going to proclaim anything, if we are going to boast in anything, if we are going to be known for anything, it's got to be Christ and Christ crucified and that's it. Only. And so we are called to be ambassadors. We are called to be spokesmen, heralds of this good news. We are to be like newscasters for the sake of others. And so what you talk about and how you speak really matters. Paul is telling us here, that what he spoke about is the same thing that we should speak about. And Christ and Christ crucified over and over. And this is how it means for us to go from perishing to salvation is that we have faith, not in our own self, not in the wisdom of this world, but the power of God, the power of the cross, the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we pray this morning that salvation, that true trust in you and you alone would find its way in our hearts and our lives. We know that the cross, it has great things for people who are outside of faith. Lord, we know that the cross of Jesus Christ have gr has great things for the people inside of faith. Correct us now. Maybe we have not come to know Jesus because it just doesn't make sense. Or maybe because we've demanded proof and it just hasn't happened in front of us. Help us to lay down that proof and lay down that exactness and hold on to the cross of Jesus and say, that is the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. So Lord, we can't celebrate 9-11 and we can't celebrate Auschwitz. But Lord, we really can celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ because you have liberated us. You have reversed death because of what you have done in us and for us. God, I don't know how people need to respond this morning, but Lord, help your spirit to come in power and help us to respond by repenting of pursuing the world's wisdom and influence. But in or in repentance, repentance and, and trusting in Jesus fully and completely. We ask this in your good name, Jesus. Amen. And so before us is the table of Jesus Christ. The night before Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took a piece of bread just like this and he broke it. He says, this is my body given for you. This is one of the most beautiful things that you should put your eyes on. The thing that was once together is now separate. He then takes an, a glass of wine, this chalice that was going to be shared with his disciples. And he says, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do you need your sins forgiven this morning? Do you need salvation to come to you? Just know it's coming by God giving his life for you and shedding his blood for you so that you could have true forgiveness and a true relationship with him. 
there are men in these corners of the room and we believe that we all need to take some kind of faith step this morning. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we would encourage you to come to these tables of remembrance and remember Jesus Christ and place your identity fully and completely there in faith in him. Maybe you're far from Jesus. And the very first half, that's where we spent most of our time, is just demonstrating how people who are far from Jesus truly can come into the people of faith. If you're far from him this morning, myself, my wife are going to be in the back and we'd love to, to, to share with you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. So go ahead and stand and just know that these stations are open for you to participate in this meal. And just know if you need to respond in faith, Nicole and I are in the back.